All right, so we'll just jump in. Um, so good to meet you, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. And Chelio is going to get started on his drawing. So he, um, every episode, transforms the energy of the chat into a live work of art. And wow. actually, um, we were both in Italy together. So we curated an exhibit called Humanizing the Icon for the Venice Biennale um, pre-COVID. And he plus other artists um, were involved in this exhibit and we were really exploring what is humanizing, what is icon into spirituality, mythology, pop culture, ideas, concepts. And it seemed to just be this vast, endless universe. And um, so during the pandemic, we spun the exhibit into this chat series and podcast. And we have like over 40 episodes really incredible, powerful visionaries that have come on. And um, we're just building out the channel and it's it's really, really cool. It's been a great like curation and um, Shelio can get started. I think we won't even, I don't even think we're gonna see his face until the end. At the very end, he's gonna tell us the messages that he- So is he making it? Is that what the camera's on? Yeah, so he will start. Right now it's just his canvas, <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Um, there's his hand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was just an eraser. I was like, what is already on this artwork? <laughs> I know. He was, he was working before we got here. Um, no, he's starting now. So, but yeah, I just like, you'd honestly popped onto my radar a few different times over the last couple of years, I'd say. Um, and I feel very like philosophically aligned. And I feel like you really do um, deconstruct, you know, structures, belief structures, paradigms. Um, and that's a passion of mine, like straight up since child, since I was a child, I'm just like, hmm, what, really? <laughs> um, so first and foremost, can you tell us uh, what Bending Reality is? I know that's the project that's currently out and there's so much backstory I want to get into over the next hour, but um, I just love the title. So yeah, thanks Jennifer. Yes. So I believe that we're always bending re our reality. It's just most of us are doing so in a very unconscious way. And most of us are therefore doing it in a way that's rooted in fear or an avoidance of what we don't are afraid to happen, right? So we're avoiding key four circumstances and then we almost make our fears um, self-fulfilling and then we almost change the odds out of our favor. Uh, and we often change our odds towards like the status quo of what everyone accepts or expects, like as you were saying, paradigm. So whatever the world seems to believe is possible, taking it for long people expect it to take like that's kind of how most people are bending their reality towards the status quo and I call it bending reality also because uh, Steve Jobs has the reality distortion field which I really appreciate and in the tech community we really understand the power of therefore how can you bend reality towards the direction you want uh, and so the book is really a step-by-step -step guide that allows the reader to consciously bend reality, change the odds in their favor, collapse time, make quantum leaps and create results really fast, hyperspeed. Ah, yes, I love that. Um, so what brought you to this like concept and energy and just understanding of the, the fields? Let's just say the fields. Um, yes. Because I believe there is a field. 
that carries like all code and is kind of like a, a field of one, so to speak. Um, do you, do you think so? <laughs> yeah, I think that um, there's definitely, it feels like there's a field, like the whole field of, you know, collective consciousness. And then there's also different fields that we play into based on like the paradigms that we have, right? So every field almost has its own coding. So there's like the field of the status quo, which is around um, what everyone expects, what's normal, what's possible. And then there's another field that I think is making the impossible probable, which is the tagline of bending reality. And that's a field of dreams, of quantum leaps, of things no one has ever seen or done before. And I think that that field has like a different coding to it. Um, so absolutely. And then how did I find myself here? Um, I feel like for a while now, like you, I've kind of, for whatever reason, was interested in looking outside the box or kind of even noticing that there seemed to be a box that people were playing in. And then I wanted to understand like, ooh, who made this box? Why is this box? What are the limitations and constraints of said box? Mm -hmm. And what exists outside this box? And I feel like that's kind of how I've been wired. I've always been curious about the things that people don't really understand. You know, it felt like everything that was known, all the facts, all the history, that was less interesting to me. I wanted to play at the edge of like, what did people not realize or understand? What are the mysteries that no one really has agreed upon yet? Um, and so that's always fascinated me. And um, in some ways, I've always been interested in the non-obvious. So it's sort of like, you know, the news, things that most people plug into. I was always kind of picking up on like what was being unsaid, what was, you know, what were the dynamics between people? And as a kid, I think I always just picked up on like between the lines, what was, um, yeah, just written between the lines, essentially energetically. And, uh, and so that's kind of followed me on my path. And I, even though like in some ways I've had a traditional career in terms of, I worked in finance, I went to very traditional like schools, um, education jobs. Um, I think at some point it was, inevitable that I would break that mold and then like transition back to what I'm doing today, which is, um, I believe like really guiding people to, um, their essence, their freedom, their truth, you know? So, um, so yeah, I'd say I was born with this curiosity and then it's, I've honed it over the years. And ultimately, um, I think it's the most exciting questions to ask the ones that like, we may never know the answers to and like staying in that inquiry is more exciting to me than staying in the known and on the known certainty, predictable realms that I think a lot of people stay in. Yes. Oh my gosh. This brings up so much. So just in terms of the edge and like the idea of comfort zone and like walls and things, mm -hmm. I find it this idea of even money as a construct. Um, as a spiritual entity unto itself or some type of like energy that we're really working with. And I love that you have a relation, like a strong relationship with money and you've moved into this space where you're working with metaphysics essentially. Mm -hmm. So what is your perception of money? Like mm -hmm. in terms of, yeah, holistically, you know? It's such a great question. It's something that I feel like I'm continuing to deepen my understanding around. And I work with people who have tons of money and yet still have a scarcity mindset and still feel, you know, poor consciousness wise. Uh, and then I work with people who have less money, who have a very abundant consciousness. So it is very interesting, this like energetics around money. Um, so 
For me, I believe that money is a tool, you know, just as we have like technology tools and different tools. I believe that money is a tool that I believe enables us to say yes to our soul. Say yes to what we want, yes to what we desire. And in that sense, um, we have a relationship to it just as we would have a relationship to any other tool. And in that sense, I think money is neutral, but because of the ways in which people have gone about using it, maybe abusing it, we've kind of projected some negative perception onto money. And so it's interesting because, um, you know, the old paradigms, talking about paradigms um, around money are often from leadership that um, is not healed, maybe has some wounds, maybe there's still some ego at play. So then money was really about, um, you know, lack, scarcity, power over others, money, um, you know, success, which was really to feed a void or feed a sense of unsafety, essentially. And, And so because that's kind of the way I think we've gone about making money to date. It's um, yeah, it's become something that we think like rich people are evil and, you know, it's become this, this thing that we're chasing or we've spent our whole lives chasing and still feel a lack of safety and security around it. Um, I believe that as we do the work, which, you know, everyone on this call tuning in probably believes in, which is the healing as we do the inner work to heal, as we quiet the parts of us that um, perhaps maybe more egoic, I think we start to see and appreciate money in a way that's more whole and healthy, which is to me, um, you know, what are the things we do? How do we share it? How do we give back? What do we like, what happens when you put money in the hands of healed individuals? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think, a new paradigm that we're stepping into. And so part of my work, I believe, is empowering a new paradigm of leadership and therefore a new way of relating to money that comes from abundance, that comes from fulfillment, that comes from joy, peace, security, so that it's more an enabler of, you know, amplifying what it is in our souls that we desire for the world, what it is in our souls that we desire for ourselves. But it really comes from a heart-centered soul-led place versus from a a place that's filling a void or a place that's um, really about a wounded uh, relationship to money. Perfect. Um, and this this word heart centered, um, I think is is really powerful in and of itself because I don't think a lot of people really understand that the heart is so intelligent. It's this it's this high level of intelligence that I feel like oftentimes um, gets blocked or um, constricts. And then it's hard, right, to like know what the heart wants. It's like we kind of live in this space to try to figure things out. So do you work with your clients to, and and let us know also about the work you do with your clients. Yeah. um, To journey them into more of a connection with their heart center. Absolutely. Can you talk about the science of the intelligence of the heart? That's so important. Absolutely. So a huge part of bending reality is um, helping people get out of their head and into their emotions and uh, the wisdom of the heart, the information that comes from feeling our emotions. And so I believe that, um, you know, our heart knows in just like two seconds, yes, no, or like how we feel about something. And a lot of people are afraid to listen to their heart because they think that their mind and their intellect is the rational, stable, um, 
reliable part of them. But um, what I think people don't realize is that unlike the heart, the mind is the one that flip-flops and can kind of see both ways of an angle and like talk itself into something, talk itself out of something. So it, like the, the mind is actually the part of us that can go mad. Uh, whereas the heart is very stable, very reliable, very wise and has a deeper knowing. And I believe that has in, knows information before the mind even cognitively understands it. So the emotions are almost um, like, uh, like just, it comes before, like it receives information before the mind even cognitively can process information. And so in that sense, I have found that my clients who learn to tap into the wisdom of their heart, the wisdom of their emotions, say that things that used to take them like you know, a long time to spin on and think about, and maybe even hours to like weigh pros and cons. Now they know in seconds, it's like, as soon as they brought the wisdom of their heart and emotions online, it was like instantaneous knowing and being able to make decisions quickly, which is key as a leader. And so that I believe is one of the missing pieces when leaders get stuck and they're spinning and they're catastrophizing and their worst case scenario plotting and they have impending doom generators of everything that can go wrong. That is when I think it's really important to pause, slow down, get out of the mind and really tune into what are my emotions telling me? What are the sensations in my body? What do I need to feel? And like almost like a dial turn up to a hundred percent to feel more intensely. How can I go into the middle of it, into the center of the discomfort and almost like let it wash over me into the eye of the storm. So that is a very counterintuitive thing that my clients have all become much stronger in being able to do for themselves is to actually feel their emotions. And I believe that it's our ability to walk with these uncomfortable emotions, that discomfort that gives us our power. Uh, because if we don't know how to do that, then we end up avoiding people and situations that we're afraid will make us feel a certain way, uh, which means we don't speak our truth. We avoid conflict. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of what people might think and humiliation. So as you can imagine, if you're living in avoidance of certain things happening to you, then you're less likely to take bold actions. You're less likely to be brave. You're less likely to lean into trust and take you know, the actions outside your comfort zone. Yes. And so when somebody takes all that in and then asks you, well, where does fear come in? And also emotions are like, I see emotions as energy in motion. Like it's, yes. it's like waves that kind right. of come through. Um, and I see the stories that I associate with the emotions more as like symbolism or portals or code. But I know in certain moments for myself and, and for some people all the time, emotions actually equal the story. Emotions actually equal the narrative. And so then they can start operating from fear because they're in a state of associating a sensation with a story. Mm -hmm. And I, I can perceive or sense that that's not what you're talking about when you're talking about emotions. You're not yes. talking about that narrative. Yes, it's a great discernment. And something that I also share in book, which is why you can be in therapy for years talking about things, but very little processing and healing actually happens when we just talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the interesting thing is that rather than having the narrative about the emotion, you just want to go into the raw sensation in the body. So you might be like, I'm pissed off at John at work because he did X, Y, Z. But instead I actually have people drop into, what does that feel like? And they might say, 
I'm feeling like there's like fire in my belly. Like I want to scream into a pillow and it's like, great. Now let's scream into a pillow, you know? So we follow the actual raw energy pattern, as you called it, the energy in motion, the sensation in the body. And we let it move through the breath movement sound. And that is really what we're processing. And to your point around um, having the narrative, what I find is that the narrative can actually keep us stuck and like the emotion left unprocessed because what can happen is like we almost compound the feeling and freeze it by saying, now I'm upset that I feel sad or now I'm mad that I feel mad, (laughs) you know? And it's like, all of a sudden we have all these subjective judgments on feeling the thing. And we're actually getting further away from just feeling it. And that's one of the most common things is someone will have the feeling and be like, but it doesn't make sense. Why do I feel that way? And it's like, it doesn't need to make sense. Cause again, the heart actually knows before the mind does. So before it makes sense to the mind, you want to allow yourself to feel the raw emotion. And then when it comes to fear, I do believe that at its core, it's like, a sense of unsafety, you know, which we might experience as fear cognitively, but really it's like the body not feeling safe. And when the body is not feeling safe, often it's actually tied to a discomfort versus an actual threat to safety. Mm-hmm. So I think as, um, you know, adults and just humans in the world, we often feel, oh, I'm outside my comfort zone. I'm about to take a risk. I'm about to expose myself, make myself visible. And that feels uncomfortable. And it triggers a sense of unsafety in our body, almost like a tiger's chasing us, but it's not actually that we're unsafe. It's just that we're uncomfortable. So that's one of the key discernments. I feel like when you have a fear is to ask yourself, like, am I just scared because this makes me really uncomfortable? Like I can feel that I'm about to step into something that makes me feel vulnerable or am I actually physically unsafe? And more likely than not, it's not that your physical safety is at risk. Um, So I think that that's one of the key things to untangle as well. And then discomfort is actually kind of pushed, like stretching ourselves into expansion, right? Like, like discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like working at the gym. It's like you stretch your ability, your capacity to be with discomfort. It's like, you're growing your strength. You know, you're growing your emotional core, you're growing your resilience. And so I think that sometimes we might overdo it and put ourselves in situations that actually feel like more like we're traumatizing ourselves. You know, it's like if there's something that feels abusive or toxic, or it's like opening up an old wound, that's when we might want to pause and be like, okay, there's something here that this is like bringing up that feels re-traumatizing. So let me look at that, um, not override that in the body. But more often than not, it's just like we're doing yoga positions or we're lifting weights. It's like, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but you're stretching, you're growing your muscle tissue, you're getting stronger. And that's actually most fears are really just about um, growing your muscles and your capacity to be with discomfort. Um, But it's important to notice, like, do I actually feel physically unsafe in my body? If you feel physically unsafe, chances are this is reminding you something that was actually a wound and a trauma, in which case you want to do the inner work and heal versus just try to push through it and override it. Mm-hmm. And all okay. And so what do you say to people when they perceive this sense of like taking bold action or stepping into their raw emotion as almost like a sense of entitlement or a sense of permission to be aggressive? Well, I've, I'm now able to, to go there. So therefore I can treat you this way. You know, I, I wonder if that gets confused sometimes too. 
because you're talking about something to me that's almost shamanic. You're talking mm, about going into the raw emotion, which is like your journey, but how that's integrated and worked out in terms of relationship, whether in the workplace or personally. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think that um, you're right, that this is an inner work that you're not like taking it out on anybody. You're not projecting, you know, your emotions onto people. So when you go into your feelings and emotions, I do believe you do that, you know, either with a trained professional or a friend or someone who's really helping you, supporting you in processing. But I don't recommend you like talk type or text anybody when you're in the state of emotional processing, because it's not for other people. You want to heal and integrate it, as you said. And um, when I notice people stepping into these emotions, I believe that until we allow ourselves to feel what this experience is actually bringing up at an emotional level, we also don't have the energy to be like, you know what, enough of this already. Like I've noticed so many people will numb their pain and numb how bad the situation is. Maybe they're at a job that's soul sucking and they're so miserable and they're, they know they're not fulfilling their passion, but it would be too painful to grieve how misaligned they are. So instead they push through, they keep themselves busy and distracted and they even numb themselves to avoid feeling that void. And what I find is that the moment they let themselves go into the raw emotion and they cry and they scream and they're like, holy shit, I'm miserable. Like that's the moment that everything changes for them. It's like they, they say enough and they step into their power and there's like an ability to make a new uh, decision because they let themselves feel the truth of the impact on them. Mm-hmm. It's like a real breakthrough. It's Absolutely. Like an actual breakthrough. Totally. It's really powerful. So I know that in your, on your path, you took a, a period, right? To kind of work with a lot of different coaches and modalities. And can you talk to us a little bit about that? Did that, did you reach a point of saturation or were you just kind of like learning different things and were you going through a healing as well? Um, yeah, at all levels, I feel like for sure. Okay. Yeah. I would say that when I first sought out my first coach, I didn't even have the concept of healing. I didn't even realize that there was something I needed to heal. It was more just, um, it was actually tactical. It was like, I want to be a better public speaker. I want to work on my communication skills. I'm going to hire someone very strategic who has these uh, presentation skills. And I ended up being introduced to a life coach, which is like not necessarily a communications coach, but it was more in the direction, I think, of what my soul kind of knew it was actually looking for. Um, And so I've worked since with life coaches, business coaches, money coaches, career coaches, sex coaches, and shamans and healers and alternative therapists and somatic workers and everything, you know? Um, And so since kind of opening up Pandora's box in a really good way, um, I like have worked with now 25 coaches and counting and, uh, and everyone is unique in its tools, style, concepts, and wisdom. Um, But I would say that to your question about saturation, I think it was less that um, eventually when I got to the 25th coach and even maybe the dozens coach, um, (laughs) it was less about more information and it was more about um, calibrating to certain humans who had like a way about them, who had an essence about them, who had stepped into their power in a way that I found just being in their presence 
activated something in me. It was like just being in their vibe and their field made me feel more of what I wanted to feel in my life. Um, and so that became more what I was looking for. So today, when I look for mentors and coaches, it's less about like, teach me something I don't know. And it's more like, I want to feel something. I want to constantly marinate in a vibe that being in your presence helps me access and stabilize so much more easily than like reading something would. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Because it's all frequencies in a way, right? Like, and, and can you talk to us about up-leveling too? And kind of like a baseline, um, that we all kind of inhabit in a way, right? There's like a, a sort of baseline until we up-level, even though we can go. Absolutely. You know, so I, yeah. Yeah. So I think that our baseline is very much rooted in what, um, our environments were growing up. So like whatever was familiar to us. So maybe we grew up in a household where there was a lot of anger or there was a lot of stress or chaos. Um, a lot of my clients are so successful because they actually thrive in chaos, thrive and have a high tolerance level for stress and anxiety, because if you map back to their homes, they actually were in pretty volatile homes and childhoods. And that could be because of the country they lived in the political environment, or it could also be actually in their nuclear family because of the parents fighting or how they related to the children. And so I find that there's kind of a, a natural baseline of our bodies being calibrated to a frequency, as you called it, or like a you know, a, a lack of safety or safety, a spectrum of that based on our childhoods. And then as adults, we kind of recreate our environments and put ourselves in the fire or put ourselves in hard work in jobs and startups or whatever it is that recreate a feeling that we become so used to feeling in our bodies. And so that's actually one of the biggest things that I help my clients with is when they find me, they're like, I don't get it because my life is great. I have like my dream family. I have money now. I have this great life, but there's like something in me that still feels like agitated or I can't really relax. Or it's like, I'm vigilant. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, there's this feeling of unsafety despite the physical environment, not being accurately reflected by that. And I believe it's because our, you know, Joe Dispenza talks about this a lot, but it's like, I believe that our um, biography becomes our biology. And so a huge part of this work is like, how can I support my clients to recalibrate, recode, rewire their nervous system so that the new states that they feel are more reflective of their current environment and more importantly, more reflective of where they want to go. So if your future is one of vision and creativity and brightness and joy and fulfillment and power, like how do we get you starting to stabilize those feelings now so that it becomes even easier to get to those states and to really create the environment and reality to reflect an emotional state that you're feeling. So um, that's what I think is, you know, our baseline. And then the up leveling comes from being able to, I call it in the book, like expansive, like feel more expansive in your frequency, which um, could be, you know, for instance, our thoughts create a certain frequency in our bodies, our emotions create a certain frequency, the natural uh, nervous system of how our body feels physically safe or unsafe creates a certain you know, vibration to it. So ultimately it, it up leveling comes from, I believe, checking your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your, your body, like how do we get all of these aligned to a more expansive state? So that it becomes your default state, the one that you just naturally operate from. And what do you, what's your take on sort of like the witness and, and the our awareness, the one that's like experiencing the experience 
of experience. Yeah. Um, that's sort of detached from emotion, right? Like, yeah. So I, I think this is huge in meditation, you know, like this ability to just witness and it's almost like your soul, your higher self that doesn't get hooked by reality. And I do believe that there is a huge value in being able to stay calm in the face of a storm. And especially as a leader to have this more objective witness. Um, but I wouldn't use that, uh, in place of feeling your emotion. Cause I noticed that there are some people who feel like their level of nirvana would be to be like a Buddhist monk and to, um, be completely just neutral and not feel one way or the other. So it's like your mom dies. You're not grieving. You win the lottery. You're not jumping up and down. It's like, no matter what happens in your life, you're very neutral. And I think there's a lot of power to that. And I believe that if you want to have the kind of life and live the kind of life that takes your breath away, that has so much beauty that you're just in awe. You know, if you want to have that kind of experience in your body, you do actually want to allow yourself to feel your emotions. And instead of being neutral, it's like what you said of letting them be ocean waves that flow through you mm -hmm. and feeling like you're really the ocean that can hold all those waves mm -hmm. and not get attached to any one of them. So it's my goal with my clients work is to, instead of just get them to be neutral, it also is how do we get you to allow all emotions to flow through you equally? So you don't feel hooked or attached or avoidant of any single one of them. So it's like, if you feel sadness, you feel sadness. If you feel joy, you feel joy. And there is actually no pleasure in just feeling only pleasant emotions. Um, they start to realize that the only quote unquote bad thing is to let emotions freeze in your body and to not process them. So it becomes less about, I don't want to feel bad emotions. And it becomes more like, okay, how do I just let all of them flow through me and understand that that's actually healthy. That's actually aliveness. Might be why we're here in a way, <laughs> you know, um, because I noticed some people get attached or addicted maybe to their pain. Mm. body like I've seen that too in my industry I've just seen it with humans right like there's um I guess we do love melodrama you know I'm a filmmaker I'm a, I'm a storyteller and I know that we love myth and melodrama and, and dark and light and evil and, and all the archetypes and stuff so I feel like we you know we are seduced by drama um yeah is that toxic <laughs> well so it's interesting because how would I put this? Let's see. I think that our souls, there's so many layers of this, but I think our souls, you know, chose to be, have the human experience to have the five senses, mm -hmm. you know? So like the soul by itself would not have the five senses to have all these emotions and these feelings. And in some ways, I think the human experience is the best game around. Like it's really fun <laughs> and it's fun I do believe that imagine like we, we were gods or we created a simulation and fast forward multiple iterations. We realized that absent the contrast life would actually be very dull. Like there'd be like it almost, if everyone just lived in perfection, like what there's relatively did not have anything to contrast it with. It wouldn't feel great. You know, like we only know something because of its absence and we only know like, um, you know, good feelings because we know pain. So um, you know, I've, I've seen even like sci-fi movies where there's people who will um, like 
manufacture having a cold because they're like in heaven and they stopped feeling any pain and they're so bored. So they like buy or purchase, like, give me a cold. I just want to sneeze and feel congested for a bit. Like, give me something different, you know? So in that sense, I feel like, you know, even if we could design it any other way, I think we would always end up designing it this way, which is to experience the contrast. I don't know if it's that we're addicted to the drama or the wholeness of life as much as it is that through, like, if you consider that we're all one and we're all one consciousness, it's like every human being is adding to the collective consciousness by having different experiences. So it's like, if we're all one and there's certain pains and traumas that happen to one person, another to thousands, it's like through the whole experience, it's like, we're learning everything that we can possibly feel like every facet of flavor of human life we're experiencing through every human being who's part of this collective consciousness or part of the spirit. So anyway, that, that may be a little bit too metaphysical, but, and I know that there's also a saying of like the most entertaining results ends up being the outcome. So it's like, if you don't know how an outcome is going to swing, just ask yourself, what would be the most entertaining version or entertaining outcome? And that usually ends up being what the outcome is, is whatever is the most entertaining, um, whether it's a news event or, you know, whatever it is. And so I do think that there is this tendency to, to want to go for whatever would be the most dramatic or the most entertaining, uh, results. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Yes, and then yes, it, yes. go ahead. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm just saying, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know it was just what popped on, on my radar now is just kind of the media and like the messaging and, mm-hmm. and they're feeling like something that's being propagated but also it's like, I, I came up with this thing. I don't know. I'm sure someone else said it, but like divinity doesn't discriminate. So mm. it's like, how, how would you differentiate, you know, something like horrific that's happening or the way someone is representing humanity, so to speak, that seems really disturbing, mm. but how is that not divine and part of like the, the grand kind of matrix or, or yeah. play of it all how would you I guess this is now getting into like excess like existential yeah it's interesting I love that you're asking these questions because it's so rare that I get to expose my thinking on these topics because it's I usually work with engineers who are not asking these kind of questions specifically okay. so um so you know I've, I've once heard this and I I really liked it which is that um in some ways humans are like the, the experiment. Like it's almost like if there was a God or a source or a mother nature universe, it's like, it's, it's even figuring itself out. And it like spung up this like human experience to even learn and discover and evolve and to have more experiences, you know, like infinite experiences. (laughs) So it's like, um, in that way we're, yeah, we're like out there living lives so that whoever created us could actually have infinite experiences through each of us. And that's kind of, I think how I tie it back to the divinity that doesn't discriminate or we're all kind of one. Um, and I also say this in the book, which is that um, there are certain events that we consider bad that have you know unintended, unintended positive side effects. There are also events that we consider positive, good that had unintended negative effects, you know? So, and there's also that Chinese parable of, um, the guy who 
his like kid injures his leg and doesn't have to serve in the army. Do you remember this story? Yes. Alan Watts tells it. Yeah. It's such a great story that captures this of like, everyone's like, Oh, it's so good that your son's not enlisted in the army. Like, cause he broke his leg and the dad's sort of like, maybe, you know, and like every step of good or bad news, he never is sucked into it being good or bad. He never labels it as good or bad news. He just says, maybe, maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Um, and I, and I kind of, I got chills when I said that, cause I kind of feel like if we pulled the lens out, that would actually be how we view every event. Yes. I was, um, so I'm actually literally in post-production on my film, um, now, like I'm in the office of the studio. Oh, beautiful. And Alan Watts is in my soundtrack. <laughs> so cool. Love and that. that brings me to synchronicity, right? Cause like you and I have never talked about Alan Watts, but minutes before I caught on here, I was dealing with the soundtrack with the Alan Watts part. So good. His voice is amazing. Oh my God. Amazing. Um, (laughs) So what's your take on synchronicity? Because I know that word's thrown around a lot, but I've sort of like lived by that um, my whole life. And I'm just wondering how you guide people to paying attention. Wow. That's like the question. Um, I feel for me personally, I feel like synchronicity is like the closest experience of time that we actually have, mm-hmm. you know? So time is not actually linear and things could be retrocausal. You know, I feel like the moments we experience synchronicity are actually the closest experiences of time, but it doesn't make sense to our linear minds. So um, for me, I think in that sense, I do experience it the way, you know, a lot of people experience it when they say synchronicity, which is that something unfolds so divinely perfectly where it's like, you couldn't have even orchestrated yourself if you tried, even if you threw all the money and all the smarts at it, you couldn't have developed a better plan than the one that actually ended up unfolding or surfacing. And uh, it could be like being at the right place at the right time, thinking you missed a flight, only realizing after that, like, oh, thank God you did because you ended up meeting the stranger at the airport and it unlocked everything for you. And it's just all these like almost, um, yeah, like seemingly accidents that become like the, 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 um, the part of the story that everything changes. And so I do feel like I intentionally almost create a lot of spaciousness to honor synchronicity in my life, which means I don't over plan things. I don't overthink things. I don't try to control and predict my life. Um, there is definitely intentionality is kind of the closest thing to, um, the way I influence my life is, is just through intentionality. But um, yeah, you know, obviously as a businesswoman, as an entrepreneur, like I have visions, I set goals, but I leave so much space and almost unattachment to it turning out the way I, I expected it to. And I believe that it's because I relate to my environment in that fluid way that there's so much um, availability for, you know, things like bending reality, things like synchronicity, things like um yeah, all the, the magic and miracles that I think are constantly happening and unfolding every moment. But when we try and control and predict life, it's almost like we limit ourselves and our perception of our reality to this little box to what we're looking for. And sort of like we're pattern matching and looking 
scanning our environment for evidence and just looking just for the puzzle pieces we know to look for. And then we miss kind of like everything else that might be there for us as a scavenger hunt clue or as a breadcrumb. It's like we kind of miss all the magic when we're trying so tightly to control and predict our life. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I, I intentionally designed my life to allow for a lot of synchronicity. I love that. Yeah. What is this thing with like trying to predict outcomes? Like humans are really prone to this Mm -hmm. need to control. It's like weighing it out. If I do this, this will happen. If I do this, that will happen. And then feeling so thrown off when it doesn't go. And I feel like with the level of client you have, I mean, they're really doers, right? Your clients tend to be real, like they're executing big agendas and things. Um, Are you, are you helping them to understand how to set intention and to be less attached to be more like, I guess, you know, I learned through acting. It's about being, being in the process, right? Not, Mm -hmm. not so results oriented. It's like, you have a vision you have a script, you have something that you're looking towards, but you kind of like let it go. It's almost like you plant yeah. a seed and then you plant the seed. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. that's part of the work. Does that give people relief? Like when they're able to grasp that, like really aha yeah. grasp it? It's such a good question. It's one of the lessons that I don't think you can teach somebody. It has to come from like almost they have enough examples now of their own life where they're realizing, oh, when I let things go a different way than I planned, it actually turned out better than I planned. And I feel like when that happens enough times, the trust increases, you know, like before you ever have this experience, if I told you just to trust it, you would be like, I'm feeling really resistant, which really means you're not trusting, right? Because then it means like you're kind of afraid and you're trying to trust, but you're struggling too. Um, And so, yeah, I would say that that's definitely like the North Star to get to a place where you're unattached to the outcomes. But when you start this work, especially for the more um, left-minded humans that I work with, much more analytical, linear in mindset, um, they create, there's a lot of safety in controlling and predicting life. There's, um, there's so much fear of the unknown, so much fear of the uncertainty, and they want to ideally control people and situations to turn out exactly how they think people and situations to turn out. It's one of the most common things I get from engineers of like, gosh, like, why can't they just think this way? Or why don't they just do it this way? Like if they were just rational beings without emotions, they would see it logically and do this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's classic for all theories, right. To just be based on, um, very like rational thinking models. But as we know, and as we talked about, like human beings have all their things that are going on, that is not just what a computer would think to do. Um, and, and if you leave space for life, if you leave space for emotions, if you leave space for human mistake and human experience, you realize that it, it's actually a false sense of control that you think you have. And in that sense, there's even people who hold on to their limiting beliefs so tightly because it gives them a false sense of safety of like, okay, I knew this wasn't going to work. Like almost like there's a delight in knowing that they're safe in what they know is right. You know, it's like people would rather be right than live the life of their dreams. So they'll hold really tightly onto even their limiting beliefs. And so, um, so yeah, I think that in some sense, we open the word with field. So I'll say that there is like this field of predictability that the most of the world lives in, which is again, like that world where this is the status quo belief system. This is what we believe, how long things should take. 
This is how we believe is possible to heal from our diseases. We only believe things that are right. Anything that we cannot explain, control, and predictably exist on the radar for the people who live in this field. And then I believe that um, in order to move to this field of possibility, or I call it the field of infinite possibilities and probabilities in the book, it does require before trust even a sense of courage, right? Like a courage of, okay, like I might fail. I might make a mistake. I might get it wrong. I might be human and imperfect. I might do something and everyone will laugh at me. I might do something and people might not like me. Like that level of fear is required um, to get out of your comfort zone of the predictability field. But most of the world does not want to risk disappointment, does not want to risk what people might think about them. So they stay in predictability, but also boredom as a result. So that, that realm is predictably safe, but also predictably in your comfort zone where you don't grow, where you don't, it's not the life where your dreams come true. Um, so I do think tapping into courage and like, again, the book supports you in, um, feeling your emotions. So bending reality is all about how do we get you to have the grow the capacity to feel your emotions so you can leave your comfort zone and feel safe in the unknown, safe in discomfort, safe with uncertainty. And then that's when I think the magic happens because when you create enough evidence in your life where you're like, wow, that turned out better than I thought it would. Or you mean I didn't have to control and predict even down to the minutes of my calendar and like everything was fine and did things didn't fall apart when I didn't have that level of control over my life. When people have the felt experience of their life actually turning out even better than they could have controlled and predicted, that's when the trust comes in. And that's when I think humans are the most powerful is when we can tap into trust. And so that's where I feel my clients eventually get to on their arc and their journey with me is they'll start to say things like, it must've been like a serendipitous thing or synchronicity. Cause like at the moment I had no idea the events were going to fold that way. And then they tell me that story where it's like this random thing ended up being the most important thing, you know, three events down the line. And then now they're like a believer. And I don't want to say believer cause it's, it's not a faith. It's just like, it's almost just an openness and eye openness to see reality is bigger than the box that we try to put things into. Yes. Okay. So my question, I have this, I've had this vision of like people with a lot of wealth becoming healed or tapping into gratitude in like this, that really, like you say, heart-centered way, these, these consciousnesses of like gratitude and abundance and circulation and connection you know if humans with a lot of wealth were operating from that frequency what effect would it have on humanity <laughs> it would solve everything <laughs> i just wonder like what would happen what would be yeah. unleashed I completely agree with you. I, I'm very much on the same mission <laughs> with you, sister, on creating that in the world. Um, I, I really feel like to date, we just haven't seen money in the hands of healed, heart, soul-led leadership. You know, um, We haven't seen power in the hands of those people. We haven't seen even success in the hands of those people. And I do believe that... Um, 
the human spirit is so resilient and the innovation, the creativity, if we just prioritized solving certain problems on the planet and, or putting our resources toward, you know, those, those problems on the planet. So yes, like that's part of my mission as well is to, um, support a healthier consciousness around wealth and power and success. And I do think it comes from doing this inner work, like no matter where you go, whatever, whatever you're hoping to accomplish on the planet, it really does start here, you know, which is doing the healing, doing the inner work. And because when you do the inner work and heal, it's like, not only is it good for the planet, but like your life thrives because of it. Like your life is so much better off the people you love, the relationships, the kids, everything that matters to you up levels when you start here. And I think that um, until you do the inner work, it's almost like the more money and success you have, the worse your problems are amplified. And I think that's why we see so many people of influence or celebrity who have addictions, who have mental breakdowns or who you know, have these things that are kind of surprising, but also not because it's like, if you don't do the inner work, you only amplify all those wounds when you do have the money and the power and the success um, and the ripple effect in terms of the negativity rippling out happens to your family. It happens to your cultures, the companies you create society, you know, what we value as a culture as a result. And so, um, so yes, I think, you know, ideally do the inner work and then go make all the money and have all the success and have all the power. Um, but we also get to be, have an intervention for the people who already have success, money and power and platform and encouraging them to also do the healing inner work so that they shift in their consciousness in terms of their values and then how they want to share and distribute their resources as a result. Yes. And so when did you, and how did you make the shift from what was your former career and how did the shift happen? Yeah. So I used to work in finance as a venture capitalist. So I used to invest in tech startups. Mm -hmm. So that was like my first kind of real job. Um, I got hired at 23 to invest in tech startups. And so that was like the first money into a lot of, you know, the high fast growing companies we know of today. Um, so that would be like the first, you know, sub million dollar check. So $250,000 check into a company. And, um, you know, when I started, I, I, the jobs that were available that I knew of were things like going to law school, becoming a lawyer, go become a doctor, go work in Wall Street, you know, and venture capital was not really on my radar, but I did see it as at least a bit of a bridge because I was like, oh, I'm bringing, you know, resources to um, companies that have great ideas that could be really creative and good for the world. And the first money in, like that's kind of the make or break moment, zero to one for these companies. So um, it was really exciting. I felt like I was doing, I was creating, you know, value versus just kind of like moving money around was how I felt about it. Um, But that said, to your point of like, how did I shift? I started to notice that, um, you know, no matter how much money or how successful my colleagues were, my clients were, the people that we invested in became, there was like a void that no amount of power was going to fill, that no amount of love by others was going to fill, respect by others was going to fill, money was going to fill. And I, I just started to feel like, gosh, this is, you know, there's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And yet most of the world is distracted trying to chase that rainbow for the pot of gold. And so I was like, okay, these people, I I feel one of my greatest gifts, I feel like is that I've been lucky enough to have at a young age, been exposed to enough people of money and status and success to see how empty it was. 
and how, um, you know, it didn't solve anything. In fact, like I said, it kind of amplified a lot of their problems. And so I think at a young age, I realized like, I want to be part of finding a solution to this. Like, I want to be part of understanding why this happens and how can I support people to either course correct early or like wherever they are on the journey to eventually find their way to this, you know, whatever you want to call it, your enlightenment or your inner peace and your essence. And, um, yeah, your soul's calling your essence, all that. So, um, so yeah, anyway, yeah, I think, um, it, my epiphany or my awakening just happened from having that front row seat to so many people making money, having impact, having power, having success, and yet could not, you know, have a healthy love relationship or family relationship or fulfillment or gratitude. And every, everything was so fleeting that it was just like constantly chasing the next high. And that was, I think my wake up call. Yeah. Like Alan Watts would say, it's, it's a game of hide and seek. You'll never win. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like you're just chasing and then it's like, but what are you looking for? You know, you don't even yeah. know really. Totally. Um, it's so, so powerful. And we are on the same mission in a way, you know, um, which we can talk about more another time. Um, because I feel so strongly too, that with art and, and images and film, um, there's that opportunity to um, contribute to that shift to like how we use images and how we totally create messages. And I think we're all storytellers and artists and designers, like no matter what field. You're I in. agree. So. I was just telling my partner that I was like, if I had the storytelling ability and the creative ability, like I'd be going to make movies like the matrix, you know, like but there's no faster way. Like, yes. Bending reality. It's, it's a movie. It's a movie in the yeah. matrix. Like, <laughs> Trust. I love that. <laughs> Trust. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, we can um, talk to Chelio. Look at this work of art, Chelio. Wow. This is our conversation, Victoria. <laughs> I need to pin this and let's see. I want to blow this up. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Tell us. Oh, wow. Today is, uh, Victoria is coming in uh, incredible uh, work. So what I perceive and happen without uh, mind, I'm Italian, so you have to try to uh, understand. So uh, this person is supposed like you. So you close the eye, you speak a little bit, but you open your ear to listen. Mm -hmm. So what the people have to explain to you. So uh, your passion is to hear, is, the, is a great gift to hear, better than uh, to talk. So you have this gift. Your, your expression is like, uh, I'm unsuffered to hear this, but I'm open to hear you. So we have a person sad, person aggressive, person uh, with uh, some uh, yelling. Uh, we have person in watch, like what means, what to say. So, uh, all this information coming to you. You decide this in your life. 
but is connection is connection with your soul. So for some things you uh, some what you heard you wast is like the black hole where you wast where you put some you don't need for do your uh, passion your artwork so something go there because uh, you don't you don't need this for resolve the problem you need to pair these people because they want to talk with you because uh, uh, maybe you are uh, a, res a resolution about this so you try to concentrate in this to hear because it's difficult to understand some people because some person have uh, many problem but uh, out to the world is personal problem is inside is imaginary problem so you take this and transform this word, so cable, you transport in your mind uh, uh, through the, your uh, mental uh, uh, work from to try to change a condor in sparrow because the best is to fly is not how but is to fly so uh oh <laughs> this is maybe i understand so this is the tone the tone so sometimes the tone uh, is so much long it's need to stay inside and reflect about what happened in the world so he is understand his is a, a, a bad idea in the mind, but the tongue is with a bit bad idea. But uh, it's naturally to her understand, reflect. So, and finally is your very hard work to analysis of this uh, mentally problem uh, from money no money successful so uh, people need to talk with you some go in the trash in the bin trash. trash in the black hole <laughs> yes black hole some you transform and then you try to explain so the best is to fly condor uh transforming in sparrow oh. so they fly together but one is angry one is aggressive and one is uh, only like to fly. So, oh, okay. This is what's up today. <laughs> it feels like a cosmic filter. Like he's saying, it's like you can hear beyond what people say. Yeah. And, and, and you have this ability to like translate and transform and very goddess. Exactly. And so mm -hmm. hard, so hard. The expression is so hard because you want to do this. So it's not a work, it's a mission. Not work, it's, yeah. It's a mission, so. Beautiful. Thank you, thank you, Victoria. I try to do honesty, it's uh, so automatic what's happened. Mm -hmm. 
I catch the energy and it's transforming. It's really incredible. That's a really like unique image that he made. Like I love this artwork. It yeah. feels very goddess-like with the animals coming out and the filter. It's cool. Yeah, I'll have to re-listen to it to, to fully absorb the full description. Yes. Thank you, Chelio. Thank you. How do you wake home? And thank you, Victoria. This was amazing. I know. I really had, did not know what to expect, Jennifer, but this was really my pleasure. So much fun to chat with you. Feel so, so much, much alignment. Yes, so much alignment. And just finally, in terms of humanizing the icon, like that term, what does it conjure for you? Like in relation to our conversation, like what does it feel like? Yeah, I would say humanizing the icon. I think it's important for everyone who has dreams of making the impact they want to make, whether it's to be an icon, to be a legend, that, um, that yeah, that you humanize this concept and realize that at the end of the day, like we're all doing our best to work on our human, like our healing and our, and turning our wounds into our gifts and that everyone on our journey, if we choose to claim it is a legend in the making or is an icon in the making. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, I feel like there's something really beautiful just to remember that we shouldn't compare our humanness to someone's iconic image or their classic, whatever it looks like on the outside, because yeah, like we all, you know, we all like need to focus. We want to compare the part of us that has a deeper knowing and has a greater light to, to bring to the planet and claim that piece as like the part of us that wants to be icon, but, um, but not, yeah, but not under, not undervaluing it because we're comparing our humanness to other someone else's, um, best foot forward, if that makes sense. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think it's great to humanize the icon for that reason. That's beautiful. That's a really cool description. And, um, I did shoot my first movie in Austin. Are you living there now? No, I just visiting, um, for a couple weeks. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Place. Very interesting place. Yeah. And I'm sure you say this all the time, but what does it mean to you or why is your series called humanizing the icon? Yeah, I mean, it's this ever evolving thing, to be honest with you. So it's not like a scripted thing. I mean, it just, it's, it, it just feels like this, it really feels like the field of, of one or like unity because what has like folded in on itself through this process of exploring um, is the human as the icon, which is sort of, this never ending situation because even the images like you know something with a brand on it or my image or whatever it's all kind of created by perception and projection in a way mm -hmm. so it's um it, it starts to feel like everything's iconic but not necessarily in this larger than life kind of way but just as a projection and as a creation and as a manifestation. So mm -hmm. if that sounds really obscure, it's because that's how it feels. Like it just feels almost like they're interchangeable, human and icon, because we're in a process of self-discovery, self-realization, self, 
we don't even really know what that means. Yeah. It's like something you can feel. So it's like humanizing the icon. It's just fun because it's everything. Yeah. It's like everything and nothing. Um, but the portal was uh, I, lots of fascinations prior to my movie, but then the like hardcore tangible portal was Mary Pickford, who uh, my movie is based on who mm. the female founder of Hollywood was actually the first cinematic icon and the first female producer and the first woman in North America to earn a million dollars in a year, but was truly avant-garde, was truly an artist. Her story got buried. Um, she was friends with Einstein and Yogananda and Alan Watts. And she was like this, she created Hollywood, like literally. She founded wow. the Academy, she founded United Artists. I discovered her and, and that was like the portal to this humanizing the icon thing. Um, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. Yeah, it's a journey. It sounds incredible. What a ride. And I love your description too. It, it just feels like all the archetypes, like you said, it's like the subconscious projection of every archetype we've ever known. <laughs> Yeah, because then it, it for me, it went into like, okay, Hollywood, what's that? It's like Holly and then wood. It's like this field of storytelling that carries like ancient wisdom and like all these things that she knew about, but it turned into this, what it turned into. But when you peel it back and peel it back, it's like, oh, wow. It's really like, there's some juicy intentional. stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. Really intentional. Yeah. We'll talk more. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I'll let you go, but this was amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me, Jennifer. It was such a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the artwork. It's so beautiful, Chilio. Yeah. Thank you. We'll, we'll send you his finished piece with his signature and stuff. Um, oh, beautiful. Say hi to Austin. I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. Take care.